The book of Proverbs. The word proverb typically refers to a short, clever saying that offers some kind of wisdom, and this book has a lot of those. But they're almost all in the center section of the book, chapters 10 to 29. But there is way more going on in the book of Proverbs, especially at the beginning, chapters 1 through 9, and the conclusion, chapters 30 and 31. The book's been designed with an introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and it first of all links this book to King Solomon. Now remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon had asked God for wisdom to lead Israel well. And so Solomon became known as the wisest man in the ancient world. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he wrote thousands of proverbs and poems and collected knowledge about plants and animals. So Solomon was like the fountainhead of Israel's wisdom literature. So while not all the material in this book is written by him personally, he is where Israel's wisdom tradition began. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I, I think as a society, um, we, we actually tend to ignore the idea of wisdom altogether. That got a laugh at the first service. You guys are falling off the... Come on now. We do, though. We, we, we tend to reject wisdom in favor of knowledge and education, which is why you'll see in our schools, in, in our culture as a whole, we, uh, we emphasize science, technology, engineering, and math at the expense of literature and art and music and philosophy. And some of you are thinking, yeah, duh, because those are the things that make money and make the world go around, right? The problem is that's a terrible idea. It, it, it does not work well. When we ignore wisdom in favor of, of knowledge and education, we create, effectively, bad people who are bad citizens. There is a reason why we, as a society on the whole, are incapable of critical thinking, right? There is a reason why we tend, as a culture, to be bad at problem solving, to be bad at dialogue, to be bad at talking. There's a reason why we are incapable of understanding nuance. This is why people want to lump us all into categories, right? You're conservative, you're progressive. You, if you're this side, you think this way on all the moral issues. If you're on this side, you think this way about all the moral issues. And anything that challenges those narratives, people don't understand. People don't understand someone who says that they are both pro-life and opposed to the death penalty, even though when you think about it, those two things link up pretty nicely, don't they? but it puts you in this weird position where you're in two different camps at once and people don't understand nuance anymore. Because for decades, for decades, we have focused more on knowledge than on wisdom, and this is where it's gotten us. There are generations of wisdom stored up in our literature, in our music, in our art, in our philosophy. <clears throat> and, and the harsh truth is, you're going to have a very hard time being a good, well-rounded person if you aren't exposed to the humanities. Right? Most people don't even read anymore, right? Which is its own separate problem. But those of us who do read, most of us, we read overwhelmingly non-fiction books. 
Now, I like nonfiction. I have to read it a lot for my job. <laughs> I spend a lot of time reading nonfiction books. But, but here's the thing. It is an established fact with data to back it up that people who read fiction are more empathetic, more compassionate, and have a higher emotional intelligence than people who do not. And those are three things that seem rather important for people who are going to be Christians, isn't it? Right? In fact, wouldn't you say that you kind of want everyone to be pretty empathetic and pretty compassionate and have a high emotion? That makes for a good society. And you get more of that when you read fiction than when you read nonfiction because fiction has a way of communicating wisdom that nonfiction doesn't. I, I was literally reading an article this morning as I was drinking my coffee about why we as a culture should, should turn back to great classics of fiction like, like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that Tolkien wrote. Right? Now obviously he's a Christian and so that, that influences his work but his work is not explicitly Christian. It's just that it has themes in there that are good for us to remember. Right? Themes, themes like like dominating others is never a good thing. Themes of kindness and mercy. The idea that, that the greatest evil you'll ever face is nothing more than a passing shadow. Right? These are good things for us to know and understand. And fiction communicates those ideas more powerfully than nonfiction. But we don't read it. Because we want knowledge more than wisdom. That's just one example, by the way, of how rejecting wisdom hurts us and hurts our children because it affects our children too. Right? We as a whole are, are an unwise society, but we can change it. And I, obviously I think the humanities are important. I have a degree in philosophy. I read a lot of fiction. I like literature. And, and I might even go so far as to say the humanities are more important than the STEM topics just because without the humanities, the STEM topics aren't all that effective, right? Science doesn't advance like it's supposed to unless it has the humanities involved in it. Think of all the, the inventions and the tools we now have that were first dreamt up in science fiction. For good or ill, right? But there is a better place for us to start. Because the reality is, if we derive all of our wisdom from the humanities, from our own literature, our own art, our own philosophy, we'll be in a better place than we are now, but we'll still have some pretty big questions we're left wrestling with, and that's why Proverbs exists. It's a book of wisdom, and it's specifically a book of God's wisdom. And so it lays a foundation for us to put all the other wisdom we learn on top of it. Now, more often than not, what's so interesting is when we read Proverbs, we actually recognize the truth in it. We don't read this and, and we're not shocked by what it says. It doesn't contain a whole lot of things that are revelatory and new. Most of the time we read it and we go, yeah, yeah, no, I know that. I've seen that, how that plays out in real. This makes total sense, right? There's nothing in there that's, that's truly shocking to us, really. Where we struggle is in the application of the wisdom that's in here. We read it, we recognize the truth that's in there, and then we just go about our lives as if nothing else has changed, right? It's like, we, we, it's like the information just goes in there and it gets stored in some place in the back of our minds until the next time we read Proverbs. And then we're like, oh yeah, I remember reading that before and it was really good. But then we don't make that, that last final bridge where you apply it to your life. The reason for that is that wisdom is not information. Wisdom is not knowledge. 
Wisdom is a skill. You don't know wisdom. You do wisdom. You live wisdom. Which means the more you do it, the better you are at it, and the less you do it, the worse you are at it. And ironically, the book of Proverbs, right, the foundation text for our, our wisdom, is written by, by Solomon, who, although he was the wisest person alive in his day, eventually, apparently, forgot all the things he wrote down and stopped practicing his own advice because by the end of his life, he was ignoring large chunks of Proverbs, and, and that led to the downfall of the kingdom of Israel. This goes to show you, if he can mess up that badly, you probably can too. The man who wrote the book on wisdom stopped doing it, and it caused some problems. There's a lesson in there. So we, we, I think we already know that our society is, is bad at wisdom, and as a result, our society tends to be bad at thinking and talking and problem-solving. And if you don't believe me, go watch the last round of presidential debates and the ones before that and the ones before that and listen to what those people are saying, because I'll tell you, they aren't saying anything. We are bad at these things. We're bad at thinking critically. And, and it's like amplified at the group level. But the solution to these things is not more knowledge or more education. Now, I like knowledge and education. I really, I value them very highly. But they are worth nothing without the wisdom that brings them to life. The solution to our greatest problems as a society is not more science, more education, more technology. It is more wisdom. And wisdom only comes from God, as we will see in Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is a long book. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. You're welcome. It's, it's kind of like Job in that it's this very long book, but it's very simple to understand. You only need to look at a couple of key verses to figure out how to interpret the rest of the book. It's a very simple, straightforward message. Um, and, and so the first nine chapters of the book are, are setting up a description of what wisdom is and why it's important to have wisdom and to follow wisdom. And then the remainder of the book is a collection of wise sayings. And so we're going to start in, in just the opening verses in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction." This is one of the only books of the Bible that tells you right off the bat what the book is about. And that's what it's about. The book is here to teach you to be wise. That's the point. And so then it's going to give you a description of wisdom in chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. But since you refuse to listen when I call, 
and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand. Since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, and when disaster sweeps you over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. So there's your description of wisdom. Now you're going to get a comparison between wisdom and foolishness in chapter 9. So I'll start with chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, which is a, 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 an image of what wisdom is doing. Okay? Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. And then skipping down to verse 13, you get the picture of folly or foolishness. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So, if you're going to write a book about wisdom, teaching people to be wise, you kind of have to assume as the writer that most people are unwise. Otherwise, why write the book? So the assumption is that most people are not wise. Even the most intelligent among us are unwise. And we still see that today. There are very intelligent people around the world who are not wise. My favorite one to pick on is Richard Dawkins. He's a very, very famous atheist speaker, has lots of books out, does lots of debates and, and things like that, and, and his whole stick is trying to prove to people that God does not exist. And, and if you listen to him, if you read his books, one thing becomes clear, he is not nearly as wise as he thinks he is. He's very intelligent. He's very well educated. His grasp of biology and, and many scientific aspects is far greater than mine is, but he has no idea what he's doing. His grasp of reason and logic is terrible. His arguments are sad and pathetic. And I'm telling you this because I can tell you any first-year philosophy student could debate circles around him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he doesn't realize it because he is unwise. Wisdom is not intelligence. It's not knowledge. It's not education. It's a skill. And it is specifically the skill of living well. Maybe the art of living well. Wisdom is the practical knowledge that helps you know how to act and speak in different situations. It's the ability to avoid problems and the skill to handle them well when they are unavoidable. So it's a skill, and that means it's something you can develop in yourself. You aren't born with it. It's not like a characteristic of who you are. It is something you develop and grow and nurture and exercise. 
It's something you practice. Which means anyone can have it. The only thing that keeps you from being wise is your own choices. So the author, right, Solomon, creates this, this image uh, of uh, woman wisdom. Right? The wisdom is portrayed as a woman. Folly is portrayed as a woman. And it's worth pointing out, by the way, that the whole book is written from the perspective of a father trying to teach this to his son. And so it applies to everyone. So there are times when we have to kind of look at what he's saying and, and apply it in ways that aren't always exactly how he lays it out, right? Like there's the, my personal favorite verse about the quarrelsome wife. We all love it, right? Better to live on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife in the house, right? Um, but, right, remember, it's a father talking to a son who would have a wife. So the advice actually goes both ways. It's better to live on the corner of the roof than to live with a quarrelsome husband also. It's applicable. It, it applies to both sides of the coin. But he creates this image of, of wisdom and folly as women because each of them are trying to, to lure you in, right? Trying to call you in. You could even say trying to seduce the people walking by. And in chapter 1, right, the wisdom lays out these consequences for ignoring her, right? It's ignore wisdom and, and you, get, you get destruction and disaster. Now, last week when I was talking about Job, I, I said that, you know, you can't, you can't just look at someone's circumstances in life and then automatically assume that they're either being blessed by God or punished by God because that's just not how it works. And, and then in this verse, it seems like they're saying the opposite, right? Because <laughs> wisdom is associated with, with God. So if you ignore wisdom, all these disastrous things happen to you. Doesn't that sound like, like God's punishing you? Well, not really. All they're really saying is the way that you live your life has consequences. If you are living wisely, very likely you'll have a good life even though you will have hardships and you'll have setbacks. It's just that because you are living wisely, you will handle them better. You'll weather the storm better. It won't, hurt, it won't hit you as hard as it would if you were living foolishly. Now, conversely, if you're living foolishly, you're probably going to have a bad life even if you are outwardly prosperous and successful. When we were living in Dallas, we were part of a church that was a, a, a campus of a larger church in Highland Park, which is a very rich neighborhood in the middle of a very rich city. And so we saw firsthand a whole lot of people who outwardly had everything you could want, and inwardly there was a great deal of suffering. In fact, one year, the, the week after Thanksgiving, we, we did a funeral for a teenage girl who'd taken her own life. Her father was a big-name lawyer in town, had his face on billboards all over the town, lived in Highland Park, had a huge house, had everything you could want. And, and one week we did the daughter's funeral, and exactly a week later we did her father's funeral. Outwardly, they had everything you could want. They were rich, they were successful, they had all the markers of a happy, successful life. And inwardly, there was obviously great pain and suffering. The things we use as the, the markers of success, as the markers of God's blessing, are not accurate. 
because so often the way God blesses us is not always in these easy to spot external things. And that's part of the point of learning wisdom is to understand. To understand that you can be following God and you can be faithful and you can live a good and delightful and fulfilling and joyful life regardless of what goes on around you. So in chapter 9, you get this comparison of wisdom and folly. And, and here's where the author makes it really clear what he's actually comparing. Because both wisdom and, and, and folly are calling out from the highest point in the city. And if you're in an ancient city in the Middle East, the highest point is where you put the temple. In every city. The temple in Jerusalem was on a hill overlooking the rest of the city. All the other cities around had their temples on a hill overlooking the rest of the city. If there wasn't a hill, they would build a pyramid and put the temple on top of the pyramid. I mean, the idea is literally you're getting closer to where the gods are, right? So if wisdom is associated with God, then wisdom is in the temple in Jerusalem. And if, if folly is in a different temple, then folly is an idol. What he's really comparing is faithfulness to God versus idolatry. This is the choice you have. And they're both calling out the same message, right? They're both calling the same thing to the people walking by. They're promising the same benefits. Only one of them is going to deliver. And so the reader is, is meant to make a choice here at the end of chapter 9, right? Which one are you going to choose? Because before you can go on to read all these Proverbs and learn all this wisdom, you've got to actually choose which way you're going to go. Because if you choose folly, these sayings of wisdom aren't going to make much sense to you at all. But if you choose wisdom, then they'll be enlightening and helpful and good. So you make your choice, and then you get into this, this long book of wise sayings, of, of, of things about how to live your life well. I told you a few months ago when I preached on Psalms that the book of Psalms is there to teach you how to relate to God, right? To teach you how to talk to him, to teach you how to pray, to teach you how to navigate uh, your faith in, in a way that is honest and true and deal with all kinds of situations, right? It helps you navigate through dark times with God and good times with God. Proverbs is for everything else. Proverbs teaches you how to deal with people, how to relate to people, how to deal with all kinds of situations in life. There's literally a proverb in there that says, don't overindulge in food, right? I need to read that one more often. It covers everything. It's filling in all the gaps left by the book of Psalms. And so like Psalms, it is worth reading over and over again to internalize it. Read it so much that that these Proverbs become just a natural part of how you think and how you approach the world and how you talk to people. Because by doing that, you learn the art of living well. Because see, the beauty of Proverbs is that it does not make any secret about what a well-lived life looks like. It tells you explicitly for 20 chapters. Now, I can't read all of this to you. It's a lot. And sometimes it's just oddly specific. But I can kind of cover the, the major points here of what it looks like to live well. One of the first ones is just to be humble. In Proverbs 26, 6 through 7, what it actually says is don't sing your own praises, right? Don't talk about how great you are. Let others do it for you. Now, this makes sense because we all know that person who won't stop talking about how great they are, and we don't like that person, Right? Those of us who were in positions where we are responsible for hiring people, we do interviews. If there's someone in the interview who is, 
who is talking far too much about how great they are, we're not going to hire that person, right? We know that there's something wrong. And it's here in Proverbs, right? Be humble. Be humble. Let your, let your life and the way you behave speak for itself so that others will sing your praises because it will mean more coming from them. In 25, verse 21, it's be kind to your enemies. The actual verse is longer, right? It's the one about be kind to your enemies and, and that will heap burning coals on their head, right? Paul quotes that in one of his letters. Jesus obviously quotes it, although he phrases it differently, right? Be kind to your enemies. Now, we still struggle with that one, don't we? We don't like being kind to our enemies. But, but the wisdom behind it is not just be kind to your enemies because that's what God wants you to do, but, but be kind to your enemies because that changes the relationship. If all you do is respond to their rudeness, to their insults with more rudeness and insults of your own, you've escalated the conflict. But if you're kind to them instead, you de-escalate. The bit about heaping burning coals on their head isn't supposed to be like literally a revenge statement. It's saying, look, flip, flip the script and imagine yourself in their position. And if you were just rude and nasty to someone in public and they're kind to you, aren't you going to feel ashamed? Aren't you going to recognize in that moment just how awful you've been? This is how you teach people to behave properly. This is how you build relationships with people who are currently your enemies. You change the nature of the relationship when you are kind to your enemies. This is the wisdom of Proverbs. We're still bad at that one. It goes against our nature, doesn't it? Here's another good one. Self-control and discipline. The actual image in Proverbs 25, verse 28, is, is of a city that's walls have been broken down when you are lacking self-control and discipline, right? Because what happens when a city's walls are broken down? The enemy can get in. You're an easy target. You've got no defenses. By contrast, if you're self-controlled and disciplined, it's like you're a city with the walls up. The enemy can't find a way in. You're protected. So self-control and discipline are your best defense in life. Here's another one that I'm not good at, right? Verse 25, verse 8, right? Think things through, don't make rash decisions, and don't be quick to judge. Someone else laughed, good, I'm glad I'm not alone, right? This is, <laughs> every time I get in trouble in, in, in my home life, it's because I did not think things through. I made a rash, <laughs> my wife's laughing already. I made a rash decision, and I judged quickly, right? I do it all the time. The, more, the angrier I am, the worse I am at that one, right? But, but that's, again, right there. Take the time. Think it through. Don't make a rash choice. Don't judge quickly. How much better would the world be if we all did that all the time? Another one, 11 verse 4. Wealth is temporary, but virtue is eternal. So There's, there's an old story about a, a rich man who's dying, and on his deathbed, he, he has his butler come, and he tells his butler, listen, I want you to take all my gold, put it in bags, and hang them from the rafters so I can grab them on my way up, right? And, and you know, he, he dies, and the, the butler goes up into the attic, and, of course, all the gold is still hanging from the rafters, and he says, ugh, I should have hung them in the basement. <laughs> I love that one. Right? It's all temporary. You're not taking it with you when you go. Virtue, however, is eternal. And, and, to emphasize, right, it's not saying that, that having wealth is bad. That's not the point. The point is, what are you prioritizing? And it applies to everyone. Right? We hear wealth and we think rich people, but that's not actually what it means. Every one of us has wealth. 
It's a relative term, but we all have some measure of wealth. And you have to ask yourself, right, if you're, if you're in business, do you make decisions that prioritize that wealth over virtue, over morality? If you're faced with a choice between making money in an immoral way or staying true to your morals and losing out on some money, what are you going to choose? Same goes for your personal finances. If you have a choice about your personal finances that, that might be immoral but would, would preserve your money or make you more money, what are you going to do? Because wealth is temporary, but virtue lasts forever. And then finally, be truthful at all times because lies will always be exposed. Proverbs 12, 19. I'm paraphrasing all these, by the way. Um, now, we all know kids are really bad about this, right? Every time you catch a kid in a lie, they're always stunned and amazed that you've seen through their web of deception, right? But as adults, we do this. Now, hopefully, as you grow up, you lie less often than you did when you were a child, right? But even adults are always surprised when someone catches them out in a lie. And, and again, if you, it, it, always, always the lie is exposed. So here you have what living well looks like. You're humble. You're kind to everyone, including your enemies. You're self-controlled and disciplined. You are, are patient and thoughtful and slow to judge. You value virtue and morality above all else. And you are truthful at all times. And doesn't that sound a bit like Jesus? The truth is we would rather rely on our own wisdom more often than not. Our wisdom doesn't challenge us in any way, right? Our wisdom would tell us to prioritize wealth over virtue because we need wealth to live. And that's the easier choice. Far easier to make in the short run. Our wisdom does not challenge us, and so it's easier. We want to live by that wisdom, but the reality is it will always fail us. Jesus gives us a different way of living. Jesus' wisdom is different than ours, and it's really the only true wisdom. And, and there's, for as long as the church has existed, we have associated this figure of wisdom in the Old Testament because she pops up again in some of the prophets. We've associated that figure with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament because it is the Holy Spirit living within us who gives us the wisdom of God. Throughout his life, Jesus modeled what living well looks like. Generosity and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and self-sacrifice Humility. He shows us how to do it all throughout his life in the Gospels. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, he gives us the ability to follow in his footsteps. We don't have to rely on our own strength to do it. And that's the beauty of it. You don't have to do this all on your own. God will empower you. God will strengthen you. God will guide you. The purpose of reading Proverbs over and over and over again is not so that you learn the information well. It's so that you immerse yourself in the wisdom of God and it becomes a part of you. It's almost like it's the key you need to unlock the Holy Spirit within you already in some ways. The more you read it, the more you begin to make connections between what God is telling you inside and what you're seeing outside. The more you read it, the more you begin to read that book and you'll read a verse and you think, oh my gosh, I see how this applies to this right here. 
I see how this helps me deal with my coworker, with my parents, with my family, with my child. That's why you have to read it over and over again. You have to immerse yourself in it until the book begins to shape the way you think and not the other way around. Jesus models it, and the Holy Spirit gives us what we need to live it out ourselves. That is the art of living well. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.